in 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19. We left off at verses 6 and 7. We weren't quite through with that yet. First Kings chapter 19. Last week, our strong, God-fearing prophet, Elijah, was not afraid of what the world would do to him as he faced off with the prophets of Baal and watched the Lord consume the sacrifice from the altar. Elijah was not afraid to tell King Ahab to get moving before the rain came down. Even though there was no cloud in the sky, Ahab could have easily looked and said, Hey, what do you mean get down the mountain? Look at the sky. It's just as clear as it can be. Elijah wasn't afraid of that. But in the latter part of our study last week, we saw a messenger sent from Jezebel to tell Elijah You'll be dead by this time tomorrow. I bet nobody in here has ever been told that. You'll be dead by this time tomorrow. So in response to that, the once brave, fearless soldier of the Lord, Elijah, fled in fear to Beersheba, which is in Judah. And he left his servant there, and then Elijah went and hid in the wilderness So though he had been walking by faith, he's now fleeing in fear. You know, a similar thing happened in another place in God's word. In Matthew chapter 14, verses 25 through 31, that chapter contains a scene where Jesus is in a ship with his disciples and a tempest came up. And place them in great fear. But in this part of the passage, Matthew 14, verses 25 through 31, listen to what it says. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a spirit. And they cried out for fear. But straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. And he said, Come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink... He cried, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? So what do we learn about Elijah, about Peter, and about us? When the faith is little, the fear is great. When the faith is little, the fear is great. When the faith is great, the fear is little. Now, You may say, but Brother Andy, I I feel like my faith is strong, but I'm still afraid of spiders. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about bigger things than that. And so Elijah 
who was brave in the Lord, just like Simon Peter, who was brave in the Lord, fearless at times. Now both of them are in fear because they took their eyes off of the Lord and put them on themselves and on their circumstances. Notice that Peter, who had stepped out onto the water by faith, because when Jesus said, come, Peter went. He went in faith. He didn't say, now, Lord, you do realize what you're doing here, don't you? I'm, I'm about to step on the water, and we're not made to float, and I'm not a good swimmer. He, Jesus said, come, and Peter went. He went in faith. But just as Elijah did in our text, Peter took his eyes off of what the Lord was doing and put his eyes on what he was doing. And that happens very quickly. And he put his eyes on what the world around him was doing, the sea, the boisterous winds, and so forth. It was then that Peter began to sink in fear. And in our text, it was then that Elijah began to flee in fear. And I want you to notice something. In neither case, in neither case, did God abandon these two? Neither Elijah nor Simon Peter. He didn't say, well, if that's the way you feel, just go on. No. He was still their God. And he would neither leave them nor forsake them. Just like he doesn't leave or forsake you, even when your faith is little, even when your fear is great. We also learn from verses 6 and 7, that the food, the drink, and the rest God provided for Elijah were symbolic of three spiritual needs. They represented three spiritual needs that we have, and we read scriptures pertaining to that. The food, which was the bread of life, and the water, the word of life, and rest, which is trusting in Jesus. So from now on, when you look at your plate, and I know all of you looked at a plate this week, you look at your plate and your cup, your bed where you rest, remember those are object lessons for you. And why not let them remind you of the spiritual needs that you have and of the God who meets those needs. That's what Elijah needed to be reminded of. Now look back in in our text. Let's look in verse 7. And the angel of the Lord came again the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for thee. If you're just joining us, we're in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 7. It says in verse 7, He came again the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for thee. You know, Elijah had already eaten back in verse 6, didn't he? Because there was a cake, bacon on coals, a cruise of water at his head, and he ate and he drank. He didn't leave it there. But this angel of the Lord said, you're going to need more than that. The journey is too great for thee. He needed more food, he needed more drink, and he needed more rest for his physical journey than he thought. And as it was with Elijah, 
and Peter and every Christian who's ever lived, by the way, our spiritual journey is also fraught with dangers and toils and snares. And sometimes we take that danger lightly, especially if it's not immediately upon us. And we're content at times that our cursory reading of the Bible just kind of hit or miss, maybe read one or two verses, so I can say, I read the Bible today, but that'll do the trick. Or we think that just a little of the Bible and a hat tip to God's goodness, thank you Lord, will be enough to strengthen us for the journey. And then we look up one day and we say, Lord, how did I fall this far away from you? How did I get where I am right now? You prepared a path for me and I'm not on it. And God's word says the same thing to you as the angel said to Elijah. Arise and eat because the journey is too great for thee. Thursday, Thanksgiving, many of us ate a little more food than we do in the course of a normal day. Some of you a lot more food than you eat in the course of a normal day. And after that full meal, perhaps you went to the couch or the recliner and patted your stomach and said, man, I couldn't eat another bite. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands or I'm going to have to preach on gluttony too. So that's not in the lesson today. But a funny thing happened. A few hours later, after you took a nap, perhaps, you snuck back in the kitchen and you opened the refrigerator or you lifted the top off of the pie pan and you ate some more. Now, a few hours before, you were stuffed like a Christmas goose in that chair or on that couch saying, I can't eat another bite. And yet just a few hours and you did it again. And then you know what you did? The next morning you ate again, didn't you? Now, keep that in mind. It's not just a funny story. Don't ever think that you have studied your Bible enough to battle the world, the flesh, and the devil. Don't sit there and say, Boy, Brother Fulton, that was good. That's all I need this year. I'll see you next year. That's enough Bible to last me all year. No, it's not even enough Bible to last you all day. Because you can hear it and let it go in one ear and out the other and have no effect on you. Other than the sounds struck the auditory nerve and were interpreted as an echo in the brain and, and the words that were spoken made some kind of sense to you. Don't come home from church and say, that's all I can eat. I'll have to wait till next Sunday to eat sheep food again. Many do that. If you wouldn't do that with food from your refrigerator, why would you ever do it with food from God's word? Don't ever think your faith is so strong that nobody can knock you off your roost. We look at Elijah at the pinnacle of the day for him or that evening sacrifice when God consumed all of that sacrifice that had been watered down and all those prophets of Baal were slain at that brook. Boy, Elijah was firm, standing on the Lord. And now he's running away. 
The angel told him, arise, eat. The journey is too great for you. You know, some may say, well, I, I, I go to church, Brother Andy. I go every Sunday, and I have for 41 years. Well, that's wonderful. That should be enough. Well, it's not. You know why? Those pews right there have been in church longer than you have. They're here every day. And all their good is to be sat upon. That's it. Or you may say, well, I have a, I have a daily verse that pops up on my Facebook and I, I read that every day. Well, wonderful. The devil has more on Facebook than you do. You need to study and then meditate on God's word. Do you know, now God has gifted his teachers and his pastors and gifted people in different ways. And so there's a gift that he's given to me, to the pastor, and to others who teach that allows us to take the Bible and to read and to study it, to study ourselves, to show ourselves approved unto God rightly dividing the word of truth that we won't be ashamed when we're teaching. But that doesn't come by me just going, okay, well, I'm good. I'm ready to teach for 45 minutes. I'd make a mess out of that. I'd look like a fool up here. Worse than perhaps normal. But you need to spend time alone with God in prayer. Your heart needs to be filled with the songs that honor the Lord and that declare your dependence on him. Listen, while your position in Jesus is secure, just like it was for Elijah, just like it was for Peter, none of what they did took them out of Jesus' hand. It's because of his faithfulness and not yours. In this world, you're going to have trouble. You can count on it. You already have. And you need more of God's word than you think. So arise and eat, because the journey is too great for thee. Let's look back in verse 8. And he arose and did eat and drink, and went in the strength of that meat forty days and forty nights unto Horeb, the mount of God. Well, we're going to spend some time here. We're going to learn all we can this morning about the word strength. What does it mean? How does it impact these verses? How does it impact us? Now here's something that we would agree on. People who don't even know their Bibles would agree on this. There is no earthly food that can sustain you for 40 days by itself. There's not a biscuit you can eat. There's not a steak you can put in your your stomach today, no matter how big it is. You could go to the big Texan steakhouse in Amarillo, Texas, and try to eat their 72-ounce steak in less than two hours. You get it for free if you do that. And I promise you, you won't go 40 days in the strength of that meat. So you might ask, well, how is it that Elijah was able to go in the strength of that meat 40 days and 40 nights? The Bible told us it was a bacon cake, which is like a, a bread of some type and water. Bread and water. Did he eat so much bread and water that it would last him 40 days and 40 nights? The key to answering this question is in the word strength. In Genesis chapter 4, if you're taking notes, Genesis chapter 4, K 
Cain slew his brother Abel. Listen to what God told Cain in verse 11 through 12. That's Genesis 4, 11 through 12. God speaking to Cain, And now thou art cursed from the earth, which hath opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. When thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond shalt thou be in the earth. So what does that tell us about the ground God was talking about? He said, Cain, from now on when you farm, when you till the ground, and you plant your seed, it's not going to yield its strength. Here's what it tells us about the ground. If we go back into Genesis chapter 1 where God created the ground, in verses 11 through 12, here's what God says about it. And God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, an herb yielding seed after his kind, and the tree yielding fruit whose seed was in itself after his kind, and God saw that it was good. So in other words, the strength God gave to the ground caused it to bring forth grass, herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree which seed was in itself, whose seed was in itself. Its strength was untainted by sin. So 100% of what God designed that ground to do would be done. He said it's going to do these things, and the ground did it. Its strength was 100%. It was untainted by sin. This is before sin entered into the world now. Now, when God told Cain, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. He's talking about the ground that he gave strength to. He said, Cain, it was not going to be like that anymore. It's cursed. In fact, God cursed the ground back in chapter 3, verse 17 in Genesis when he told Adam and Eve, Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. And if you've ever picked weeds, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you've hoed cotton, you don't eat cotton, but you do have to hoe the weeds out of it. If you've done any of that, you understand a little bit of that sorrow, don't you? It's hard work. So the ground would no longer be strong as it was before sin entered into the world because of sin, God had cursed the ground. It wasn't God just being mean, as some would say. He was simply doing what he said he would do. So you eat of the fruit of, the, of this tree, the knowledge of good and evil, and the day you eat it, you'll die. All these other things that were once perfect were cursed by sin. So God took away the strength of the ground that he had once bestowed on it. Now, in our text, the meat which Elijah ate would have been just as powerless to sustain Elijah as the ground was powerless to sustain Cain. 
What's one thing we know about Cain? He died. He died at some point, didn't he? Now, what would Adam and Eve have done had they not eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? They would have lived forever in the presence of God, no sin in the world. That didn't happen. So what we learn here is that the God who gave strength to the creation of the ground would give that same strength to the food Elijah ate. That food didn't have that strength. It was God who had to give it that strength to that food. And that is what allowed Elijah to go for 40 days and nights without having another meal. And this was no less than God showing Elijah that what God provides is always enough to sustain us. Now, if you say, well, then why do I have to eat two, three, four times a day to be sustained? God's not trying to sustain these sinful bodies so they'll live forever. These sinful bodies are going to go away. So if somebody says, well, I'm gonna, I want to see a miracle where a person eats a meal, and 40 days and 40 nights later they're just fine, what good would that do? Jesus did miracles in his day, and all the people saw, and they still doubted him. And because what God provides is always enough to sustain us, we should never turn down what God has provided. It's right here in this book. Forty days in the Bible is a time of complete testing. As the rain came down 40 days and 40 nights in Noah's day, as Moses was in the mountain with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights, as Jesus was in the wilderness 40 days and 40 nights, having fasted before being tempted of the devil, devil so Elijah would rely only on what God provided him during those 40 days in his journey to Mount Horeb. Now at the end of verse 8, it says that he went under the Horeb, under Horeb, the Mount of God. Horeb is also Mount Sinai. It's where God met with Moses in the book of Exodus. Let's look now at verse 9. And he came thither unto a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said unto him, What doest thou here, Elijah? So Elijah is living in a cave. And God said, or the angel of the Lord said, what are you doing here? (laughs) What a question. The cave is like what we saw when David fled from King Saul, who was trying to kill him. What doest thou here, Elijah? Sometimes I get distracted when I'm working on a project. I'll have two or three things on my mind and I'll bring the wrong set of tools to the place where I'm working. I'll bring a a saw when I needed a hammer. Doug, I know you've never done that. You're such a focused worker. Tony, I know y'all haven't done that. And I'll hold that the wrong tool up to what I'm about to do, and I'll I talk to myself an awful lot, and I'll say, Andy, what are you doing? (laughs) I'll go back and put the saw up and get the hammer. I know what I'm doing. So when I say, what are you doing, Andy? I'm not asking myself 
to declare to myself what I'm actually doing. I already know. It's, it's a statement that we use. Uh, so what my statement is actually expressing is how ridiculous I must look at that moment. And I'm too old to worry about whether anybody saw me or not. They've seen me every time I couldn't find my truck in the Walmart parking lot or my patrol vehicle in our very small parking lot behind the sheriff's office. So I'm way past worrying about what anyone thinks about that. But you know, in our text, God wasn't wondering aloud what Elijah was doing there. Just like he wasn't in suspense about where Abel was when he asked Cain, where is Abel thy brother? God knew where he was. He knew the answer already before it ever happened. Elijah's answer was the reason for God's question. God knew his answer ahead of time, but that was the reason for God's question. Because God was about to teach him another spiritual lesson. Look in verse 10. So here's Elijah's answer to God's angel, speaking for God. Elijah said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Elijah's resume was Elijah's answer to the Lord. He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. Now, the word jealous here is not the type of jealousy that we would associate with envy, or covetousness. It's translated that way in other places, same Hebrew word, but here the context is zealous, which is how it is also translated in from the Hebrew to English. What Elijah was saying here is, God, I want you to know how much, how hard I'm working to defend your reputation, to guard your word, I'm diligent, Lord. And then Elijah's bad report of Israel was part two of his answer. You ask me why I'm in the cave? Well, number one, I've been zealous for you. And number two, the children of Israel have messed up. For the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant. That is, they have left off the agreement to the covenant that God made with them by serving other gods. Baal in particular. The covenant between God and his people does not have a clause in there or a phrase that says, you know, if you don't feel like it, you can worship another God for a little while. It doesn't have that in there. It's a covenant. And God honors his covenants. And that covenant did not allow for the children of Israel to halt between two opinions but to obey the word of the Lord. And he said, they've thrown down thine altars there in verse 10. Like the altar Elijah rebuilt at Mount Carmel. And the throwing down of the altar was simply a byproduct of forsaking the covenant. When you forsake the covenant, anything you do after that is no surprise because you've yielded to the flesh. And the flesh never surprises And then it said, and they've slain thy prophets with the sword. That's what Jezebel did. If you remember a few verses back, she killed all of the Lord's prophets with the exception of a hundred, I believe it was, and Obadiah, 
hid them in caves so she couldn't kill them too. And he said, Elijah said, I only I am left. Listen, this is a good place to, to know something just in case you ever thought that you were the only one. You are never the only one serving the Lord. You never are. He, he's a lot stronger than that. If you think you are, you're, you're foolish. If you believe it to be so, then you're doubting God's sovereignty and that he has preserved his saints all across the world. He said in verse 10, and they seek to take my life away. Seek my life to take it away. You know, that's an unpleasant thought, isn't it? But that's what we signed up for when we became Christians. You may say, well, I didn't, I didn't see that on the contract. Listen, your life's not yours anymore if you're a Christian. It's, it's God's. It belongs to him. Listen to how Jesus addressed this same issue in John chapter 15, verse 18 through 20. And boy, it's good to go back over these types of verses just to remind us that in this awful world we live in, that's curling down the toilet, that these things are going to happen. John 15, verses 18 through 20, Jesus told his disciples, if the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. Elijah forgot one thing in all of his anxious fretting, and that was this. God the Son would one day be a hated man. His death would be sought by many, both the religious and the irreligious. And for Elijah to think he was above being killed for his faith was to think he was above his Lord. And although his inner man did not believe to be true, his flesh did. And that's what he was yielding to, was the flesh. The desire to remain alive in the flesh over serving God. Write down 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, if you're taking notes. 2 Timothy 3, verse 12. Just so there's no mistake here, it says, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. It's a guarantee from God. And it applied to Elijah and to Peter and to us too. And if you say, well, I've never been persecuted, thank God you haven't been persecuted to the level that some people have in this this world. Christian brothers and sisters whose lives have been taken from them, who've been imprisoned, sent to re-education camps and so forth, had their children torn away from them, tortured and all of that. You've been persecuted if you're living godly in Christ Jesus. 
It may have been very subtle, or it may have been uh, more noticeable. But you're going to be persecuted if you live godly in Christ Jesus. God has guaranteed that. Now let's look in verse 11. And here's the answer from the Lord through his angel. After Elijah lays out this resume and these accusations against Israel, and he said, go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind rent the mountains and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. Now, let's stop and look at this for just a moment. Although verses 11 and 12 really go together, don't need a verse break there. As before, God did not pat Elijah on the back, tell him what a good boy he was, or agree with him, yeah, Israel's bad. They shouldn't be coming after you like that. God said, get out and stand up. That's paraphrase. Get out and stand up. By staying in the cave and hiding, Elijah would be following what his flesh wanted to do. Now, God did not tell him, now, Elijah, I know you're scared, and and when you feel a little better, I want you to come out of the cave. He made him get out now. And that's when God wants you to trust him is now. Maybe you've said this or you've heard it said before uh, when somebody is burdened about another, particularly when they're lost. And that burdened Christian says, when he comes to the end of himself, maybe he will trust God. But I never want someone to have to come to the end of themselves before they trust God. They need to trust God now, just like Elijah needed to trust God now. What if he dies before he comes to the end of himself? And some people do have to come to the end of themselves, as it were. But if a person hasn't come to the end of himself and he dies, then he's lost. He dies lost. So what we tell people when we witness to them is what the Bible says. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved in thy house. We don't say when you come to the end of yourself, when you, if you'll just study all these religions and finally figure out that the Bible is true, they're not ever going to get around to that. The devil would love that. Just put a little delay, a little distance between the witness, the, the day they're witness to and the day they believe. Oh, they can believe later on. That's what the devil does. God said, go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord. And it says in verse 11, and the Lord passed by. Now look down in verse 12. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. What do a strong wind that breaks a mountain, an earthquake, and a fire have in common? They are all spectacular forces that God created. And those spectacular demonstrations of those forces announce his power to his creation. And it is the spectacular event for which people look now 
when they expect to see God moving. But in this case, God was in none of those. Oh, he created them. And by those spectacular events, he had spoken many places in the Bible. In fact, I'll give you one of each of them, the wind. Our text told us God wasn't in the wind, even though it rent the strong mountain or rent the mountain and broke the rocks. But in Job chapter 37, one of Job's friends named Elihu had made some bold statements, but God said those were without knowledge. So in chapter 38, verses 1 through 2, here's what it says. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? And the last person who had spoken was Elihu. So in that instance, God spoke from the whirlwind. And then the earthquake, which we also encountered in our verse, in our text, God was speaking to the prophet Isaiah about a sinful city called Ariel, not the mermaid. Okay, so some of y'all watched it, didn't you? You laughed when I said Ariel. (laughs) And God said this, Thou shalt be visited of the Lord of hosts with thunder and with an earthquake and great noise with storm and tempest and the flame of devouring fire. And then fire, through which God spoke in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 2. Exodus 3 contains a very familiar passage to you if you've studied with us in the past. And that's where God spoke to Moses in that burning bush. And verse 2 says, And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. Now, in our text, Elijah was not making bold statements without knowledge, so God need not speak to him by a whirlwind. Elijah was not committing the sins of the city of Ariel, so God need not speak to him by an earthquake. He had just spoken by fire, showing he was the Lord God. You contrast these mighty forces through which God had spoken in other places with the next thing we see, and after the fire, a still small voice. The Hebrew word translated still is used two other times in the Old Testament. Once as the word silence, and once as the word calm. This morning I got a call from my son-in-law, my middle son-in-law, and he said my middle daughter, my Lauren, was about to take the dog out for a walk, and she tripped over Christmas tree cord or something like that, and she split her chin open and knocked some teeth fragments out. So uh, there, she doesn't handle that stress very well, and, and he doesn't always. But he held it together on the phone. But you know who the calm is in our family. It's me. 
girls call me when they need to be calmed, which is not very often, but I understand what calm means, what calm brings to a situation. It's not apathy. It's love in a different way. And so you see the word still and silence and calm all being the same Hebrew word. Now let's see if those other verses will help us understand this verse. What is this still, small voice? In Job chapter 4, verse, verses 14 through 18, Job has already suffered greatly at the hands of the devil. All but four of his servants have been killed. His livestock have been killed or stolen. His wife has told him to curse God and die. All of his children have died in a, in an earth, in a whirlwind. And Eliphaz, the Temanite, said this, Fear came upon me, and trembling, which made all my bones to shake. Then a spirit passed before my face, the hair of my flesh stood up. It stood still, but I could not discern the form thereof. An image was before mine eyes. There was silence. Now that's the same as the word still. There was silence, and I heard a voice saying, Shall mortal man be more just than God? Shall a man be more pure than his maker? Behold, he put no trust in his servants, and his angels he charged with folly. So to fear, God spoke, and it used the word silence. That doesn't doesn't mean God didn't say anything. It means... It relates to fear. He silenced the fear of this man, Eliphaz, by telling him these following things. Now in Psalm chapter 107, this is where that Hebrew word is translated as the word calm. Psalm 107 verses 28 through 30. Then they cry unto the Lord in their trouble, and he bringeth them out of their distresses. He maketh the storm a calm, there's the word, so that the waves thereof are still, then are they glad because they be quiet, so he bringeth them unto their desired haven. What have we learned from these verses in Job chapter 4 and from the 127th Psalm? When fear comes upon a man, the Lord brings him silence. When he's in distress, the Lord brings him calm. And in Elijah's time of fear, he didn't need for God to speak to him through the wind or an earthquake or a fire, but to bring him calm, to silence his fear. And God did that by speaking to Elijah in a still, small voice. I've heard a lot of messages from preachers who use this part of the Bible particularly the still small voice as their text. But what they have said about it has often been man-made. You know, we independent fundamental Baptists can do that. It's not a good trait to take the Bible, read something, and then shut it and walk around and say what you think about it. I'm glad the Bible has its own built-in commentary. We looked at those other two verses that use that same Hebrew word. It keeps me from getting off base with my own interpretation of the scripture because I'm flesh and blood 
and I'm just as prone to do that as anyone else. But by the grace of God helping me study his word and teaching me what I need to teach and then writing it down before I forget about it, he's been good. Verse 13, and we won't be able to get through this, but we'll start. And it was so when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entering in of the cave. And behold, there came a voice unto him and said, What doest thou here, Elijah? Same question he was asked before. Now, in the, at the beginning of verse 13, this is how we know that not only did God speak to Elijah with a still small voice, but also Elijah heard it. This is how we know. Because it said, and it was so when Elijah heard it. And that was the last thing being spoken of in verse 12 was the still small voice. That was what Elijah heard. That's how God spoke to him. Okay, we'll have to stop right there for sake of time. Hope you'll come back next week and we'll see why Elijah would be asked, what doest thou here? Again, any questions about the lesson? All right, must be dismissed.